All right, let's uh, go over the announcements while everybody's waiting a minute. I have to do one little thing. Eddie, we're going to have a little audio, so be prepared. All right, I think I can do it. We're going to do something new, access to something new. Okay, announcements. Baptismal service on July the 9th, uh, time to be determined later, probably about 5 o'clock in the afternoon at Grace Bible Church on Schroeder Road out by Willowbrook Mall. We have three adults, two children. Also, Saturday night fellowship dinner, we're going to have folks sign up to bring sides and desserts, and there'll be a sign-up in the fellowship hall. And then we're going to show the film, God is Not Dead, Part 1. I want to come up with some questions so everybody can think about those questions while we watch it as an application of what we've been learning in apologetics. And so that will be good. It's supposed to be a very good, um, very good film. And uh, if in, there's going to be need for some help in the kitchen. If anyone's available, please contact Pam Richards. Also, we're about to sign a deal on the hotel room, and we're going to take a group to Washington, D.C. next year, April 25th to 28th, for a Bible Museum of the Bible uh, tour. And uh, so that will be three days, and then there'll be a lot of free time. We're going to schedule things in the morning from breakfast to lunch, and then afternoons will be free and evenings free for families to come and go to see whatever they want to see. And Dan Ingram and I will do teaching every morning before we go to the museum on the Bible in American history. So uh, fly up on Wednesday, fly back on Saturday evening, or stay over till Sunday, whatever, something like that. Details will come, and then we're planning an Israel trip for June 4th to 15th in 2018. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're all walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together into your presence. We're grateful for your grace, your goodness, your kindness to us. We're grateful for another week, another night to learn your word, another week to live, another week to study your word and to be transformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we study tonight a difficult subject for many people, that is submission to authority, that you'd help us to understand why that is so important and that God the Holy Spirit would drive these truths home to our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in a great chapter, great chapter, chapter uh, 24 in 1 Samuel, where we're going to be studying about David at En Gedi and the 
lesson here is what the Bible teaches about authority and authority orientation, which is part of grace orientation. Each of those spiritual skills that I talk about, are that, that whole system is such a, a fabulous way uh, to organize what the Bible teaches about different areas of facing and dealing with con- uh, conflicts and difficulties in life. And each of those 10 spiritual skills really subsumes several different ones under uh, each category. Grace orientation involves humility, which involves authority orientation. It involves um, submission, a lot of other related areas in terms of spiritual life and spiritual growth. And so we come to 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we see David exhibiting grace orientation towards Saul, humility towards Saul, submission to Saul's authority, even when Saul is in the wrong, even when Saul is attempting to destroy David, to kill David. This is the 15th out of 16 times that Saul tries to kill David in Samuel. And you would think that under the law of self-defense, that David would have the right to do something, but he does not. In fact, what little he does, he ends up becoming uh, convicted and feeling guilty over. So we're looking at this episode of David at En Gedi and then uh, authority orientation. And I mistyped that. It should be First Samuel 24, 1 to 22, not 31. Okay, the chapter begins, now it happened, when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, take note, or pay attention, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, the term wilderness, we often in American history, thinking about the wilderness in early American history, which was forest, Uh, that word communicated something different in the Greek. It refers to a desert, as you'll see. We have lots of show-and-tell pictures tonight to help us understand this. En Gedi is an absolutely uh, beautiful area in the midst of an absolute wasteland. Here's the map orienting us to where En Gedi is. Remember David's journey. He was with Saul in in, uh, Gibeah. He flees Saul, goes to Nob, is fed by the priest, flees, says, where, where's the best place to hide? In the middle of my enemy. So he went to Gath. Gath, he's discovered, he's, his cover is blown. Uh, he fakes that he's a madman because in that culture, people think that they're touched by the divine. So he's able to escape, goes to the cave of Adullam. His, what became known as David's mighty men, began to... Uh, come to him and to they 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 are people who've been dispossessed of their homes and their land by by the government by the tyranny of Saul they're people who are down and outers and they're looking for security and protection from David David they know is the anointed of God to be the next king and so they come to him in Adullam he takes his family across the uh, to the other side of the Dead Sea to Moab where they have some relatives remember his uh, grandmother or great grandmother's Ruth and so leaves them there and then he comes back to uh, the forest of Herod and the wilderness of Ziph and the Ziphites at the end of chapter 3 um, turn on him and they report to Saul 
that that uh, where David is, and David is with them. So Saul came down to seek David, and David flees, and he goes down south here to the wilderness of Maon. And from there, he's going to go to uh, En Gedi. This is really a better translation would be the desert of Ziph and the desert of Maon. And then he ends up over here at an oasis called En Gedi, which is just on the west side of the Dead Sea. It's about 35 miles to the southeast as the crow flies from Jerusalem. So that'll give you a little perspective here. From Jerusalem to En Gedi is about as far as uh, Katy to downtown Houston. Isn't that about right? About 30 miles, 35 miles, maybe Brookshire. Uh, that's the distance. So you can travel it. Of course, the highway doesn't go directly. It goes down uh, to the Dead Sea here and then goes south. It takes about, oh, 50 minutes or so to make the trip in a tour bus down to En Gedi. En Gedi is uh, fed by a spring. You can see it on this aerial. Uh, you can see how beautiful the area is. You can also see the wilderness of Judah. This is uh, the, the wilderness there, the desert back here. The desert of Ziph would be the, the immediate background here, and further south would be the desert of Maon. And there's two wadis that come down. They're called rivers. That's the Hebrew word is Nahal. And you have this river, Nahal Aragot, the river of Aragot, and Nahal David. And that's this one. That's where we'll see most of our pictures from. This is the location of the spring. Uh, in Gedi, you can see the trees there around the spring. And as we'll see, in Gedi is named for either the wild goats or the kids of the wild goats uh, that uh, live in the area. Here's another aerial. This is looking at the uh, Nahal, um, what was the name of that? Nahal Aragot uh, on the left. Nahal David is over here on the right. And so you can once again get a good idea of the barren area around there. And yet deep within these gorges, you have water and you have greenery and they're uh, quite beautiful. Here's Another overhead looking back from the, uh, that would be from the northwest at the uh, Nahal David here. And it's believed the cave, you can go up to it. I've never been up there. In fact, we only made in Getty the first two tours I went. I'm hoping I make it next year. Different things have interfered, either too hot or not enough time in the day or things like that. But it's really nice, uh, nice place to get away. There's a Pastor Dan Ingram standing there and get, as you're looking up the gorge and you have a trail that you can follow that winds its way through here and there's a stream that flows down there much like the hill country and you see a lot of waterfalls and, and places where you can stop and you can swim as you see in this particular picture. So it looks quite different from what it does when you're up on, on the top, up above. Uh, same thing here as you get up there there's a very high high waterfall area and then here's a picture of some of the people in the group you can maybe pick out a couple of people this is Wayne House here on the right you can't see him too clearly and Pat Broussard and me and here's a uh, anybody remember Kelly Karn she was 13 on that trip 
Here's another collage I put together. This is one of many caves that you see in the area right here. Here's uh, Bob Beaver taking a break in one of them. Here you see another uh, waterfall as it's uh, cascading down along the uh, along the bottom of the canyon. And then here you have these rock badgers. There's one here, and you can make out the head of another one right there that are everywhere, and you see them uh, running around. I wanted to show you a little video that, um, if my computer will, there we go, will let me. These are videos now that, that um, Logos Bible Software is putting, putting out. They sent teams to photograph things, so I thought I would uh, play this. It's about 30 seconds long and gives you a moving video. Wait a minute, where is it? Ah, okay, we'll start over because I haven't done this before. Okay, we're going to have to do it this way. I'll have to drag that over to this screen, and then we will play it from here. Some of the caves in the area. There goes one of the rock, rock badgers running there. And this is inside the cave. It's called the Cave of the Do Dodanim, and it's a cave where they think that Saul hid. So that gives you just a little bit of a sense of what that, what that area looks like. Okay. Then as we begin in verse 2, we read, then Saul. Now, this is coming up after Saul had come back from following the Philistines. He, remember, they had attacked uh, some various uh, cities, towns in, in Judah. And in verse uh, 25, uh, or 26 of chapter 23, uh, Saul was told about them, or verse 27, excuse me, hurrying come for the Philistines have invaded the land. And so he, t he breaks off his pursuit of David and goes to protect uh, Israel. So he still has a sense of responsibility that the role of government, the role of government is very limited. The role of government is to protect its citizens from enemies without and from criminals within. And the role of government is to provide for their security and for a stable economy. The role of the government is not to get involved in everything. It's not to be in the insurance business, which is what everybody's all upset about right now. And everything, they're wrong. Everybody's wrong from the get-go. They're not supposed to be in the insurance business. That is not the government's job. And we can support that biblically. So when we come to wherever I am here, there. Saul uh, then came back to pursue David after he got a report that David was down in the area of En Gedi. And we're told that Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went down to seek David and his men on the rock of the wild goats. And that's basically what the term En Gedi refers to. The word for wild goats is Yael, which is also a name that you'll find uh, uh, a Hebrew name. 
and it refers to a mountain goat, probably the Nubian ibex. Now, there's an artist picture there. We saw quite a few of them when we were down in um, uh, further south, down in the Negev on the last trip. Bryce and I got up very early in the morning. We got some beautiful shots of, of the ibex there. But in this passage, it tells us a couple of interesting things, a couple of interesting words. Saul takes 3,000 chosen men with him. Now, that's not a great translation because we've all learned about the doctrine of the magnum bar. Remember the magnum bar and choice almonds. or These are the best, the, the choice. The, they're the excellent ones. This is the elite group that Saul takes with him, 3,000 now. How many does David have with him? David has six, 600. So David is outnumbered five to one. They have, Saul has his best troops, his choice troops, and David is stuck with the outcasts, the ne'er-do-wells, uh, the ones that are loyal to him and are enemies of the state. Now, this word chosen, choice, is how it should be translated from the Hebrew bachar. If it had just been translated choice instead of elect or chosen, we would save a lot of problems in the uh, whole conflict over the sovereignty of God and the free will of men. It would make it a totally different argument based on uh, a more accurate understanding and translation. And this word is used uh, a number of places, but here it's uh, also we see David is, uh, I mean, Saul attempts to kill David approximately 16 times. This is number 15, and these are the references, 1 Samuel 18, 11, 18, 17, 18, 25, 19, 1, 10, 11, 15, 20 to 21, and 22, 23, 8, and 15, 24, 2, and 26, 2. Those 16 times. Here are some of those kids, uh, the Ibex kids, the wild goat kids that we see uh, uh, gambling around there in the area of um, Getty, and we see a number of the males here in this picture and here is one of the larger ones they are quite impressive uh, in their size and especially the uh, length of their horns so we saw quite a few of them when we were there uh, it was a lot of fun we were there in June and it was hot not too hot, but it was hot. So we stopped at the, uh, I just found out this pool is called the Pool of David. And we stopped there and we took a little swim. That's uh, Kelly Karn over here and uh, Jeremy Thomas, pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church, and I uh, had a little fun swimming in the hole there, the watering hole. Now, What's interesting in this episode is we see that when, when Saul is bringing his 3,000, David has 600, that Saul is doing what many people do when they face conflict. They, try, they rest in the abilities of man to solve their problem. And that is warned against in Jeremiah 17:5. that says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. That is Saul. That is a depiction of Saul, and it's a depiction of carnal believers, and it's a depiction of unbelievers. 
They are putting their trust in politics. They're putting their trust in finances. They're putting their trust in uh, their 401k. There's putting, not that any of those things are necessarily wrong, but that's where they're putting their ultimate trust is in the abilities of man to solve their problems rather than trusting in God. David, who has been facing these this problem with Saul all through this period we've been studying going back to, to about chapter uh, 19, has written several psalms which we have studied, one of which was written at the very beginning when Saul's men are trying to kill him. And there in Psalm 56, 3 and 4, David expressed the principle of the faith rest drill. Whenever I am afraid... I will trust in you. See, Saul is going to trust in his power. He's going to trust in his army. David says, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Does that mean David didn't ever use his army? No. But ultimately, he's not trusting in human ability. He's trusting in God to strengthen the army. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? And that word for trust in both Jeremiah 17.5 and Psalm 56 is the Hebrew word batach, which I put up at the top, which means confidence. Where's your confidence in life? Where's your confidence in the midst of problems? Is it in the promises and the provision of God? Are you putting your confidence in human viewpoint techniques and methodologies and skills? The issue is trust in the Lord. Cast your care upon the Lord and he will sustain you. So Saul is chasing David. In verse 3 we read, He came to the sheepfolds by the road, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. That's a euphemism. Literally, this is where the king goes alone. There's a proverb in Spanish, or an idiom in Spanish, that talks about, going to the restroom where well, you're going to go where the king goes alone. Well, that's where Saul's going. None of Nobody's going with him. None of his attendants are about to go in there. Literally, the idiom here in the Hebrew is to cover your feet because when you drop your trousers, you cover your feet, or you drop your robe, you cover your feet. That's about as graphic as I'll get. So he's going in there to relieve himself, and little does he know that David's got... I don't know if David has all 600 of his men in there, but he certainly has a large contingent with him, and they are hiding in one of many caves that dot the area. So these are just some of them. There is one that you can hike to up above that I've never been to, and that is the one that is traditionally viewed as the uh, uh, cave where where Saul entered, and that's a, a picture of the size of it, the interior of the cave where a lot of men could easily easily go in. Now, in the next verse, what we learn is the problem with counseling. Now, that doesn't mean all counseling is wrong and all advice is wrong, but we as individuals always need to weigh the advice that we're given. Now, I know some people who say, if you're going to ask me for advice and I tell you, if you don't follow it, I'll never give you advice again. That's a little arrogant because everybody can make mistakes, including the person who takes the advice. It's not a lot of grace orientation there. But we see a problem uh, here with David because David is going to be given advice by his, by his men, by his staff. 
in verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, David, it's God's will. Look at what God's done. We've just finished studying about the will of God, and people too often will use certain fortuitous circumstances as, as thinking this is God's opportunity. Look at what God's given me. God has put Saul in my hand. I can take his life. I've got no, no problem. He's evil. He, you, you could build a very strong case for why David would be justified in killing Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. He's, this is the 15th attempt. Uh, so it, it's a pattern. Saul has uh, taken his wife away from him, all these many different things. Saul is out to get him, but David knows that nothing would justify raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. So his men say, this is God's will. Isn't it wonderful? God has put him right in your hands. And many times you and I also think this same way. And it's not an, these situations that God gives us aren't opportunities. They're tests to see if we're going to do what the word says to do, if we're really going to trust God. And David passes the test. He is going to trust in the word. He has doctrinal orientation. Now, that means his thinking is lined up with scripture. And so as he lines his thinking up, he has been taught the word. And so he is going to line his thinking up with the word. And his staff says, <clears throat> um, even make something up here because there's, no, uh, there's no place where the Lord says this. They say, the Lord said, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And there are many well-meaning people who will make things up as they try to paraphrase or summarize scripture and they get it wrong and it's just used for self-justification and usually to justify a very wrong action. But David does sneak over to Saul and he takes out his knife and he secretly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. He cuts the hem. And so that's going to shorten the robe. Now, there's a couple of different comments that are made about the hem as I was reading through the literature. And basically what David is doing is he's collecting evidence to be able to show Saul, see, I could easily have slit your throat, but I'm not really after you. All your counselors and all your advisors are telling you and slant, telling you I want to kill you, and they're slandering me, and here's the evidence um, that I'm not. But if you read the commentaries, uh, one view is that this piece of the skirt of Saul's robe is an identity card, something like what I just said, to prove that, that David could have taken Saul's life if he had chosen. And then the writer makes an interesting uh, comment. He says, in Mesopotamia, a piece from the hem of clothing was used as a type of authorization. And so it would almost be like a seal, like if you were given a uh, a piece of the robe of the king, it would serve as your authorization for taking, um, taking a messenger. And this is verified in what's known as the Mari letters, which was a collection of, uh, of letters and correspondence from the Mesopotamian area. Another view, which I don't think is right, is that uh, by taking this, David is symbolically usurping the kingdom. And that doesn't fit anything. He is not trying to take it ahead of time. He's not trying to demonstrate that. And he's not trying to show that he's 
that that Saul's rule is invalid. Nothing, nothing like that at all is going on. And that doesn't fit in light of what happens immediately thereafter. We read, now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. He is so, his conscience is so sensitive here that he recognizes that this was an act of disrespect to Saul's authority as the anointed of God. Not just the fact that he didn't kill him, but that by taking and cutting a piece of his robe, destroying that private property, that in and of itself was wrong. Now, the implications of that for how we are to respond to authority, whether it's uh, parental authority, employer authority, authority in the classroom, is, is profound. Because what this shows us is we are to go the extra mile in showing respect and honor to someone in authority even when they are 180 degrees wrong, and even when they have it out for us, even when they view us as their enemy. In the classroom, you may be sitting in a university classroom and the professor is seeking to destroy Christianity, and at that point you have to deal with them in grace and kindness, not react in anger and hostility. Uh, They may be attacking the country. They may be uh, liberal socialist. You have to handle the person in authority with grace and with kindness because it's not our position to remove them from authority. It's our position to represent God because we may be the only people with a biblical foundation in grace that they'll ever run across, and their understanding of grace might be shaped by your testimony. Same thing can happen in the military with a commanding officer. It can happen in government with somebody who is a a leader, somebody who is your representative in Congress who may be dead wrong, and it may be the president who may be dead wrong. But our response is to obey that authority. We'll come back and summarize that a little, little bit later on. So David's heart is troubled. And basically what that means is that he regrets deeply what he has done and that he, his conscience is convicting him over what he has done. And so he says to his men, notice he admits this to his men. That's also a sign of a, of a good, strong, confident leader. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master." The Lord's anointed, and the word there for anointed is the word I have at the bottom, Mashiach, which means the anointed or appointed one. It's the same word that refers to the coming promised king of Israel, the Messiah. So he, the, the king, the human king, is a type or a picture of the future divine human king that would rule over Israel. So he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Twice he emphasizes he's the anointed of the Lord. See, what David is saying here, it doesn't matter how sinful, how wrong, how criminal the activities of Saul are. He is still the Lord's anointed. That the Lord keeps him alive is a sign of grace. He's keeping Saul alive to teach David some things about humility 
and to teach the nation something about what a bad king is so that when David becomes king, they perhaps will have the capacity to appreciate him. They never quite learned that lesson. So David restrains his servants with these words. Uh, There's debate over the exact meaning of the Hebrew word there for restraint, but that's the general idea from most of the uh, uh, studies, is that in some way he is stopping them or preventing them from going further and attacking Saul. And so Saul got up, he left, went on his way. Following this, David arose, went out of the cave, and now he's going to let Saul know exactly what has what has transpired. And he calls out to the, to the king, and he says, um, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down to the earth. Notice he understands proper respect and protocol, even for somebody who doesn't personally uh, deserve it because he's showing respect for the office. And that's one of the things we have to understand, that people in authority, whether it's parents, whether it's a husband, whether it's a teacher, whether it's an employer, people in authority deserve respect because of the office that they're in, even if they personally don't deserve respect. And that's part of grace orientation and humility. We just came out of a horrible election cycle, We continue to see a lot of horrible things going on in personal reactions on both sides of the aisle to others because there's a loss of what you'll read in the press as civility. As this nation has gotten away from the word of God, we have a loss of grace orientation. We have a loss of humility. And as a result of that, we're going to become more and more fragmented arrogance rules that you're either humble or you're arrogant and if arrogance i mean if humility is disappearing from this nation then arrogance will rule it happened one time before it happened in the 1850s over the slavery issue and when i read the vitriol that comes out of especially the left now i mean the right was angry at obama but they never stooped to the level of the left today This is going to lead, and it was the left. I'm not validating or affirming slavery at all, but it was the left that that lit the fuse that led to the Civil War. And we can go off into that. Not that the not that freeing the slaves wasn't the right thing to do, but it was done a wrong way, which ended up in slavery because there was so much arrogance that was fueling the abolitionists. And I've gone through a whole study of this in the past, that abolitionism had its root in the arrogant man-centered theology that came out of what was called New England theology and the new divinity school in New England, fueled by people like some people think he was a great evangelist, he was a great heretic, Charles Grandison Finney. He was the um, uh, founder of Oberlin College, which was the seedbed of abolitionism. But he didn't believe in the total depravity of man. He believed man was basically good. He believed that, that, um, that nations could be reformed because they were basically good and that it was the job of the Christian to reform and to do away with all of the sins to bring in a perfect utopia. That's not biblical. He was a, he was a full-bore Arminian. 
and he was totally wrong in his theology, and he didn't believe in eternal security and many, many other things. That kind of arrogance always breeds hostility and division. Now, that doesn't mean that the other side was right here. They reacted in their version of arrogance. We're going to see the same thing again in this country unless something changes. I will not be surprised. I'm not predicting it. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I will not be surprised if we don't see much worse violence. And in places, it could even deteriorate to, to shooting. And it will come from the left, not the right. Because they are so hyperbolic in what they are saying, young people who don't know any different, don't have any perspective, never heard anybody else. A recent Pew Research poll came out and talked about the fact that for uh, a vast number in the, in the 18 to 30 range, they don't know anybody who voted for Trump. They don't know anybody who's a Republican. They don't know anybody who's a conservative. And all they do is sit in their little, their little clique of hyper-liberals and uh, snowflakes, and they get everybody, each other all riled up, and they want to stop anybody who disagrees with them and shut down their free speech. That's what's happened at Berkeley. And if that continues, and you don't have adults in the classroom, by that I mean professors, who can counter that by teaching them proper protocol and good manners and obedience and how to play well with others that they don't agree with, then we're going to end up in a shooting war. And we have all of the same ingredients in this recipe that we had in the 1850s. But what we learn from history is we learn nothing from history. And it can be just as bad because we've lost our biblical foundation. That's the only thing that can give a culture a sense of humility and grace orientation. And it happened in the early 1800s as well. The, the second great awakening that people often talk about, I think that people haven't studied the theology of it well enough. The first great awakening was fueled by Calvinists who had a high view of Scripture and a low view of man and a high view of grace. The second great awakening was fueled by experiential, uh, feel-good, method of uh, uh, evangelists who focused on methodology and they they had bad theology they had a low a low view of god a high view of man and a low view of grace and a high view of of uh, legalism and arrogance and that is what fueled it they got away from the word of god and we're much further away from the word of god today than they ever were before so David exhibits grace. He comes out, he shows good manners, he shows protocols, shows respect for the king who's trying to kill him. Says, My lord the king, Saul looked behind him, and David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down and said to Saul, Why do you listen to these words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? So what do we learn here? We learn that Saul is being influenced by his staff, by his counselors, by those around him who are lying about David. They're slandering David. They're telling him that David hates him. David's trying to take the kingdom from him. And they're telling all these lies about David. Now, you've stuck it out for the last four or five months as we've gone through all the different psalms that David wrote during this period. What was one of the themes that kept coming out in those particular psalms? 
let me remind you. Psalm 56, when David wrote this, uh, while he's in Gath, and he's calling upon God to deliver him, he says about his enemies, all day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Mental attitude sins, they go to verbal sins. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, they, 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 they want to trap it. Psalm 34, in his praise for God delivering him in Gath, he says, he says as an exhortation to his, uh, to his uh, reader, to the listener of the psalm, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's a lesson that he learns from those who surrounded the king. In Psalm 52, 1 through 4, he says, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. Boy, haven't we seen that a lot in the slander against this president in the last six months. Now, I'm not justifying anything that Donald Trump has said or done. But what is being what he's being accused of, he may have gone two in, deviated two inches in one direction, and they're accusing him of going clear off the cliff in that direction, which is a complete lie. But that's how they're viewing it. It is this is the slander that comes from arrogance that seeks to destroy people. It leads to self destruction. David says in Psalm 52, 3, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. And that's exactly what we see. It's not just on the left. There's examples on the right, but right now we're seeing it a lot on the left. And then he said, you love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. Then in verse 10, he said, uh, David says to Saul, look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. What's he doing? Evidence. He's not ignoring evidence. He's using evidence. He's using it the right way. He's giving an apologetic for his action. He's giving a defense for his action. He said, um, the Lord delivered you today in my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. He's the Mashiach. He is a type of the Messiah. He is the anointed king. I can't lift my hand against him, no matter what he does, because now a judge or someone in a different authority position than David could maybe could have done something on the basis of the law, but David's not a prophet. David's not Samuel. David can't do anything. Verse 11, he goes on, he said, and notice the respect. He, he calls Saul my father because of the way Saul had treated him at one time. It's a, it's a sign of respect to Saul. My father, see, look, the corner of your robe is in my hand. I cut off the corner. I didn't kill you. I could have killed you. It would have been just as easy. It was only a few inches further, and I could have had my, the point of my knife deep in your heart. But see, I want you to know that there's neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. In other words, you're totally unjustified. You've been listening to the slanderers, and here's evidence that they're completely wrong. I do not want your life. I'm not going to take your life. I'm not trying to steal the throne. And then he says in verse 12, 
Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. What is he saying there? He's saying, this is, I put this matter in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. God is going to deal with it. God knows all the facts. God knows the truth. He's going to make the decision between us and let God demonstrate his justice toward you. That's what the word avenge means. When we read the translation, vengeance is mine, said the Lord, we take this idea of vengeance as some sort of personal retribution against somebody for doing something wrong. But that's only one meaning. It really also has the sense of of executing justice. And God isn't taking personal retribution against somebody when it says vengeance is mine. He's the one who's going to, as the supreme judge of the universe, he's the one who has the right to judge and adjudicate the issues in life. And so we put things in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. We go to the Lord in prayer. We cast our care upon Him because He cares for you. We put our confidence in Him, and we trust in Him and not in man. And so David's conclusion is, no matter what you do, I am not going to lift my hand against you. Now, he's going to get a second opportunity. Test is a two-parter. second part comes in chapter 26. Verse 13, he goes on to say, As the proverb of the ancient says, Wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, see, if you come to this with the kind of postmodern uh, framework of a lot of the young people, the 20 to 30-somethings today, they would be offended for Saul. They would take offense. You just called him wicked. You just said he was evil. How judgmental you are, David. You, what gives you the right to say that, David, that Saul is wicked? And so uh, I heard today about a, uh, a commercial that was done for some gym that was very well done, and they were talking about the importance of working out and staying in shape and eating a good diet and where they would fit into that whole program. And... Um, and what the reaction on Facebook was that they were fat shaming the the father and his son that came, and of course, most of the people that heard this were you know totally in favor of the ad but but see that 's what happens today, so when we 're witnessing to somebody like that, you say, "Jesus is the only way. Well, you just told me i 'm wrong you 're so arrogant, you say my beliefs are no good. See, they immediately turn it that way that 's the way the culture that they've grown up in trains them that when you say one thing positively in terms of truth, then what they're going to hear is, if you say, here, if you don't want to drown, take the life jacket. And then they're going to turn that around and say, well, you think I'm stupid for not taking a life jacket, that I can't swim and that I can't do anything, I can't protect myself. See, they just flip it because of their arrogance that they're always right. So this is what we're dealing with in this culture. We have to think about how to communicate the gospel graciously and with humility in that kind of environment. David is doing that. He's presenting evidence to Saul, and he's going back to a proverb that he knows Saul would hold to. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. My hand shall not be against you. In other words, I'm not wicked. I am not going to be the one to take your life. Verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? 
Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? Several times you have this, this image. Dogs aren't wonderful pets in the ancient world like we have today. Uh, so what it's saying, whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A dead dog was something that was, that was useless, that was worthless, that was just being cast aside. So are you coming out of uh, uh, chasing me and treating me like I'm something that's, that's just useless? Therefore, verse 15, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Bottom line is he's taking it to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And that's exactly what needs to happen. There was uh, somebody who listens pretty regularly to Bible class and was listening as I went through the Psalms. And at the same time, God took this individual through uh, just a horrible test of slander. Uh, so much so that it threatened his job. Uh, and he decided, as a result of what I was teaching, it was just perfectly timed, that he was just going to put it in the hands of the Lord, and eventually he was vindicated uh, as a result of all of that. The Word of God actually knows what it's talking about, and it works. Verse 16, So it was... When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, listen to this, this is not the voice of repentance. This is the voice of remorse. This isn't the voice of the person who recognizes they shouldn't have been stealing cookies from the cookie jar. This is the voice of the person who was caught, and he's sorry that he was caught stealing cookies from the cookie jar. Oh, David, you're more righteous than I am. For you've rewarded me with good, whereas I've rewarded you with evil. See, Saul, Saul is 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 not on the right path here. He's just he's just feeling caught up in a lot of remorse and and guilt feelings, and he feels convicted at the point, but it doesn't change anything. And then he says, "Oh, David, you've shown this day how you've dealt well with me." For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. Does this change anything for Saul? Not at all. He's going to try to kill David again. This is the 15th try. There's a 16th one coming. And then he goes on in his speech. In verse 19, he says, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, and the implication is, you let me get away safely, so obviously I'm not your enemy. Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. You know, that's just so much garbage. But it all comes from emotion that he feels is important at the time. But there's no change. There's no true change of thinking in Saul. There's no genuine repentance. And he says, Now I know indeed that you shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. He's already known that. Therefore, swear to me down by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. This is the one thing that comes out of Saul's speech. He wants a guarantee from David that David won't execute vengeance upon the house of Saul and he'll let his children and grandchildren live. Because that was pretty common in the ancient world that if you uh, replaced one king with, with one dynasty, then the old king's family would all be killed. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
Well, the word there translated stronghold is interesting. It's the Hebrew word metsuda, metsuda, which is where we get the word masada, matsada, which is the fortress that is only about 10 miles south of Engedi. Of course, it wasn't a fortress at that time, it, just a plateau that was uh, built into a fortress uh, much, much later in the Hasmonean period. Now, just a little wrap-up here. We've got about 10 or 12 minutes. I started a little late. I want to review quickly what does the Bible teach about authority and why? Why is this so important to be obedient and respectful and honor authority? Well, Scripture says that there's no authority that doesn't exist apart from God, and there are various individual authorities that are mentioned in Scripture. You have the authority of the high priest in Acts, mentioned in Acts 23.5, who, of course, was out of line spiritually at that time. You have the authority of those who are in charge of the synagogue. You have the authority of the Sanhedrin. You have the authority of a judge. You have the authority of pagan officials. And there's even authorities that are recognized within the hierarchy of demons, okay? So these authorities are all what the Scripture talks about, that the authorities are from God. God is the one who raises up and brings down, even if they're, they're unbelievers. So let's go back to understand authority a little bit. First of all, authority is not a human convention. It's not something people came up with because they thought it was a good idea. Because there was somebody at one point who said, I'm going to be the boss and make everybody submit to me. And that sounds like a good idea. So let's create a chain of command for everybody. That's not how it works. Authority begins with God. See, if man invented authority, then we could say that authority is the result of living in a sinful environment. But the lie for t that disproves that is that there's authority in the Trinity, and there's always been an authority structure in the Trinity. Authority structure is simply recognizing that there's one person who's in charge and others go along with, with that leadership. And that's really the focus is leader leadership. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and John 5, 19 to 30, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ recognized that he's under the authority of the Father. And it's not just in his humanity. It's in his eternal position as the Son of God. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight said, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. The him there is God the Father. So this is looking to the future when the angelic conflict is resolved, that the devil, his angels, and all unbelievers are in the lake of fire, and all believers are in heaven. All things are finally made subject to him. The Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Second point, angels are to be subject to Christ, the Son of God, as seen in 1 Peter 3.22, that he's gone into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. That's in his humanity because they already were subordinate to him in his deity. Okay, so there's a, a, a hierarchy, authority in the perfect environment of heaven where there's no sin. 
So authority isn't related to being in a sinful, corrupt environment. Third, every church-age believer is to submit to the authority of Christ. That's a tough one. Every one of us is supposed to be under the authority of Christ. Every single day we need to be thinking, am I walking in obedience to Jesus? Am I walking in obedience to the Word? Ephesians 5.24, just as the church, that's every believer in this age, is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We'll get to wives in a minute. Fourth, servants are to submit to their masters. 1 Peter 2.18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. God doesn't give us wiggle room. Just because the other person is wrong doesn't mean we can be wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right. If I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times growing up. And yet we live in a world today where people don't understand that. Nobody ever repeats that anymore. Too many baby boomers said, I'm not going to be my mother, and I'm not going to repeat what she said. And so look what they spawned. Fifth, wives are to submit to their husbands. Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the fact that women are to wear a head covering because that shows their respect for authority to the angels. Now, why in the world would the angels need to learn that lesson? Could it be that one of the chief angels led a rebellion against God, and they need to learn the lesson of authority, and that women submit that? Now, I think the head covering is their hair. It's not a physical head covering, but you can go back and listen to those lessons at another time. Six children are to submit to their parents. 1 Timothy 3, 4 and Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. doesn't say children obey your parents in the Lord when they're right. doesn't say children obey your parents in the Lord when you think they're right. It says it's the right thing to do even when they might be wrong. Now, the exception is when they tell you to do something that directly contradicts what God tells you to do but you better have scripture and reference to demonstrate that. Young people are to submit to their elders. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders, that is, those who are more mature than you, show them respect and honor. Yes, all of you should be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's what submission is. You're not submissive, you're arrogant, you're not humble, you're not demonstrating grace orientation. And God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Eighth, church members are to submit to their leaders. How about that? They should follow their pastor. When the pastor says, follow me, he doesn't need to turn around to see if anybody's there. Church members are to submit to their leaders. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I have to give an account for what you do with what I teach you. But I'm not going to come knock on your door and make sure you're doing the right thing. All I can do is make sure I'm teaching you the right thing. 
Let them do so with joy. That is, pastors should have joy. Too many pastors have grief. I am very blessed. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The problem arises when someone or some group, and that was something I copied in there by mistake. All believers are to submit to government authorities. 1 Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, okay? So the same language is used in Romans 13.1, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. No authority. What about the authority among the demons? No authority. What part of no authority didn't you get? God allows even Nero to be an authority. God allows even Saul to be an authority. God allows even Nebuchadnezzar to be an authority. These authorities that exist are appointed by God. It's a dogmatic statement by Paul. What's our response? 1 Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance, not the ones that contradict Scripture. We know that. Paul says in Romans 13.2, Therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, God uses unjust rulers, unjust parents, really, unjust school teachers, unjust presidents, unjust chief court, uh, Supreme Court justices, unjust members of Congress. God used Saul, who was a carnal and evil ruler, and sought to murder David on 16 occasions. Isaiah called Assyria under Sennacherib the rod of God's anger. They certainly weren't spiritual, but they were doing God's will. Not that they knew that. It was his sovereign will to discipline Israel. Later, Isaiah calls Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, God's anointed. doesn't mean he was saved. just means he was appointed by God to a particular task. And what was that task? To release the Jews to go back to their homeland eventually. That's what would be allowed by Cyrus. And last, Jeremiah said that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. That was before, I believe, Nebuchadnezzar was saved at the end of Daniel 4. So in summary, authority is not part of the created order. It's not part of creation, per se. It didn't arise or originate within creation. It's part of the makeup of the triune God. Authority is inherent to the ultimate reality of the universe. Two, authority is necessary for any social group, any organization, any order, any group of people in order for it to function and to achieve its goal. Somebody has to be, in, be responsible, somebody has to lead, somebody has to be an authority, and other people need to submit to that leadership. Otherwise, you have anarchy and chaos. Third, at the very center of all authority is God, who is the source of all authority. That's why when we d disobey an authority, it is a spiritual act of blasphemy against God. Because we're saying, Author I'm great enough to judge when this authority is wrong. David knows. There's clear evidence that Saul was. But David's not going to put himself in that position. 
When Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. Fourth, authority was the ultimate issue in the angelic conflict. Satan rejected God's authority. And so that's why it's the ultimate issue in life. It reflects the angelic conflict. So we have to respond to authority because that's what honors God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and work our way through it. Understand difficult things because we've all been in positions where we thought the person in charge over us had no idea what they were talking about. We might have thought they were evil and they were going to destroy everything that they touched. But nevertheless, we have to learn to submit and to trust you in the midst of that difficulty. We need to have this as part of our family structure, part of our work environment, part of our government. And we as believers need to emulate this, especially in the areas of grace orientation and humility. We pray that you would help us to understand this and see in our own lives the areas where we're flawed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.